Welcome to Mom Fashions, an honest discussion about the beauty and burdens of motherhood. I'm Emily. I'm Beth, and we're your hosts. We hope these next few minutes encourage, inspire, and remind you that we are all in this together. This is Mom Fashions, a Fort Worth Moms blog production. Episode 9, Surviving Sex Trafficking, an interview with Rebecca Charleston. Hi, Mom Fashions listeners. Emily and I have a very special episode for you today. We have the privilege of sharing with you the story of Rebecca Charleston. Before we let you drop in on our conversation with Rebecca, I want to let you know that this episode contains depictions of violence and abuse that may not be appropriate for little ears and may be disturbing to some listeners. Rebecca's story left us speechless, and we hope that you will find as much encouragement in this mama's heroic story as we do. Hi, moms. We are here today with a very special guest. She is the executive director of Valiant Hearts which is a nonprofit organization here in North Texas. Her name is Rebecca Charleston, and she's going to chat with us today and share her story and give us a little more information about what she does. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, Emily and Beth. Nice to see everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Just introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, a little about your family, all of that good stuff. Give us the scoop. Sure. Well, today I'm a proud mom of a seven-year-old little boy. He just started the second grade. His name is Isaiah, and he's probably the joy of my life. I actually am from Texas. Um, As you mentioned, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit today. I'm also a consultant with the National Criminal Justice Training Center, and I have my own public speaking business, Becca Speaks Out. So I educate people on the topic of human trafficking because it's a personal experience for me. I was actually trafficked for more than 10 years, and which is what led me to where I am today. Can you give us just a definition of trafficking? so that our listeners and so that we can understand fully like what this all entails. Mm -hmm. Trafficking is basically when you exploit someone for your own gain, whether it's through labor or sex. There's actually 25 different types of human trafficking in America today. And so obviously we don't have time to go through all those types. But for those of you that are interested, I encourage you just to Google 25 typologies of trafficking. And you're going to find a free report that's put out by the Polaris Project, who runs a national human trafficking hotline. And it's a really good report because, you know, right now, a lot of us hear about sex trafficking. And that kind of has the limelight. And trust me, I'm grateful for that. But if we're only looking for pimp-controlled sex trafficking cases, we're missing 99% of it. I mean, when we're looking at the people that are peddling magazines door to door that aren't getting paid and are being forced to work all day, that's human trafficking. Um, Obviously, agriculture industry, huge amounts of trafficking. The service industry, I mean, service workers in restaurants and hospitality, huge amounts of trafficking. So when you look at sex trafficking, you typically have three parties. You have a victim, you have a buyer, which is the customer, or John, or trick. There's a lot of different words for them. And then you have the seller, which is the trafficker or pimp, sometimes called boyfriend, sometimes called husband, could be called a lot of different things. When you look at the four most common types of human trafficking in America today, specifically sex trafficking, I should say, it's going to be gang, pimp, familial, and survival. 
And those types all look completely different, as do the victims of each type and the perpetrators of each type. So in the pimp-controlled trafficking, that's my case, which I know we'll get to in a little bit. Start us off a little bit with your story, just dealing with the issues that kind of led into trafficking or... Like we all think it's not going to happen to us or it's not going to happen to someone we know or it it feels so almost like mysterious and over there and not us. So yeah, yeah, I would love for you to kind of really tell us, you know, you're a regular girl and a regular mom and like some horrific things kind of entered your life. Well, I'm so glad you said that because I I think you're so right. So many people think it's a problem with those people over there. And I look just like you guys. Mm -hmm. There's no difference between us. And I mean, it really could happen to anyone, especially when you layer in vulnerability factors and things like that that make kids more susceptible to Mm -hmm. becoming victims. Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, I, I was born in Dallas, Texas. My family moved to Keller, which is a small safe, quiet suburb of Fort Worth when I was five years old. And um, that's kind of the year that I realized maybe my life wasn't like everyone else's. And we we had just moved to the house in Keller, and we didn't even have our furniture delivered yet. We were sleeping on pallets on the living room floor, you know. And uh, we got a, li- a knock late one night on the door, and it was some family friends that had come over to tell us that my oldest brother, Brian, had committed suicide. Oh, gosh. And it was obviously a really difficult moment in my family's lives. Um, You know, they tried to recover the best they could. We didn't gain any healthy coping mechanisms or really learn how to process the grief. And and so I remember even as a five-year-old girl, the guilt I would feel when I would even say my brother Brian's name. And it just became this subject that we weren't supposed to talk about. And, you know, looking back, what I realized is that lesson taught me was that we don't talk about important issues in our household. We just sweep it under the rug and keep it going. Mm-hmm. And we show up for church on Sunday and we plaster a smile on our face. And we tell when people ask us how we're doing, we say we're fine. I had a mostly normal childhood from that point. You know, I was a soccer player. I was a cheerleader. In the fifth grade, I started to get bullied a little. I kind of hit puberty before everyone else. And I got I was bigger than the boys. And oh, gosh, you can only imagine in mm-hmm. the fifth grade how much you hate yourself, yeah. you know, because of that. And yeah. so the sixth grade boys were picking on me and bullying me and calling me names. And I was really thirsty for attention at the same time. You know, here I was being picked on, but I still wanted attention from guys. And at one point I I slept over at one of my best friend's house and her older brother had a sleepover the same night that we were in the fifth grade, they were in the ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I was sexually assaulted. I remember being so confused, you know, at at 11 years old, you don't have the language for that. You know, you you don't don't know what's happening. And I remember it hurt, but then I also remember there's this, I mean, he was really cute. And I remember thinking like he's paying attention to me and mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do about it. Um, at the age of 14, I actually wound up going to this church lock-in. You know, I was still really involved in my church. I was just beginning to get those like little seeds of rebellion. You know, like being a teenage girl is hard on everyone, mm-hmm. right? Amen. It is. Amen. <laughs> Much less when you're walking around carrying unresolved pain and trauma and grief. And so... There was this cute guy that I knew that lived close to the bowling alley, and I decided that I was going to sneak out of the bowling alley and at the, out of the lock-in and hang out with him for a little bit. I thought maybe we would kiss or something. And as soon as we got to his house, we walked into his room, and he shoved me on his bed and violently raped me. Mm. Like I said, I had no idea what to do. I fought him. You know, I fought yeah. him the best I could. And 
I ran back to the bowling alley and I snuck back in and I pretended like nothing happened. How did you cope after that? What did you do? Yeah, honestly, I suppressed it. You know, I, I didn't tell a single soul. What I know it taught me about my value and worth was that I had none. And I was grasping at straws and I just wanted to be numb. I just wanted to numb the pain. And so I started using drugs at about 15 years old. The first time I used, I smoked marijuana and I remember I scored three, three goals in my JV soccer game right after. So it was like, yes, weed is amazing. You know, instant positive mm-hmm. reinforcement. And so then I started using more drugs and started only, skipping school. And, as only a 15 year old could surmise, right? Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. This is great for me. Exactly. <laughs> And, you know, started cutting school and got in trouble at school, stole teachers' credit cards. I mean, I was just starting to live, you know, a really rebellious life at that point. And I got kicked out of school. And um, my parents had these rules, like probably you guys heard growing up. If you live under our roof, you go by our rules. So at the age of 16, I told my mom and dad that I wanted to move out. And they said, okay. I had already been working odd jobs since I was 15. And so I had a job. I moved in with my manager's sister. My manager was sleeping with me. And and now I had to work more to support myself. And now I could use all the drugs I wanted because I didn't have to hide it from my mom and dad anymore. And I really kept them at arm's length, you know, and they were terrified. They had no idea what to do. They thought our baby girl is going to die just like our son did. You know, they suspected I was using drugs. But like I said, I just wouldn't let them in and talk to them. And so my next oldest brother was going to be getting married at that time. He asked me if I wanted to be a bridesmaid in his wedding And so I said, sure. That sounded like fun. I'd never been a bridesmaid before. And so my parents made this arrangement. Undoubtedly, my parents were getting phone calls every single day from Keller High School saying, your daughter's not here today. Your daughter's not here today. And so, you know, they threw a Hail Mary. And they came and picked me up to take me to the specialty dress store in East Texas to get fitted for a bridesmaid dress. And uh, I fell asleep in the back of the car. I got drunk the night before and fell asleep and woke up a couple hours later and thinking, how did they find this dress store? It's so far. And we finally pull up to this facility and and we walk inside and there's all these young girls lining the hallway of this building. And I'm thinking, what in the world? This is not a dress store. And we walk in this office and I slowly start to grasp what's happened, that my mom and dad have signed over their parental rights to me and placed me in an institution in East Texas. It was horrible. It was miserable. I mean, you have no contact from the outside world. It's literally jail. You're forced to go to church three times a day. We got the leftover food from the food bank that they didn't use. You know, we had to do private um, homeschool work in a little cubicle with no, con- you know, no interaction with anyone else. You know, after a couple months, at 16 years old, being isolated from the whole world, I started to drink the Kool-Aid. You know, I mean, I started thinking, maybe this isn't what God has for me, right? Go figure. Maybe he doesn't want me using drugs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I kind of began to change. At the four-month mark, if you have good behavior, you're allowed to get – if your parents are close by, they can come pick you up and check you out for two hours and take you to, like, a nearby park. I was ready to make my case. You know, I was ready to live under their roof, and I was ready to go by their rules Um, you know, if they would just let me out of that place. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to stay anymore in that place. And so I did. They came and picked me up that afternoon, and I had been writing them all these letters, and uh, they told me no. For me, something inside me in that moment just snapped, and I made a vow to do whatever I could to work that program and run and never look back. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what I did. At the six-month mark, I was able to have a home visit for good behavior. It was over the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I had three nights at my mom and dad's house. And on the third day, I snuck my mom's phone out of her purse and called a friend from high school in the bathroom and said, you got to come get me. I can't go back to that place. And I ran and never looked back. To me, I hated my family at that time. I hated them for what they'd done to me. I didn't want anything to do with them. They were just dead to me. And I just started living with whoever I could at that point. As a young teenager, what do you think would have made the difference? You know, when we see those bad kids, right? I don't believe there's anything, any such thing as a bad kid, but kids that are sounding the alarm bells by their behavior of something is going on. We're seeing that 10% above the surface. Those are the kids that we need to be running after, pairing with a mentor, an advocate in the community, somebody that's going to be trusted and build a a relationship with them to find out what's that 90% beneath the surface. Because there's a reason they're sounding that alarm bell, just like there was for me. I love those programs that pair you with, you know, just someone older that's maybe been where you've been and maybe they're not a grown up and they don't have it all together yet necessarily, but just there would be a safe person that can talk to you about those things and make you see like, no, that shouldn't have happened to you. And no, you should say something and and it's going to be okay. You're not going to get in trouble. I can't speak enough for having healthy relationships. We're going to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsor and we will be back. This episode of Mom Fashions is brought to you by Fort Worth Moms, an online parenting resource for moms in Texas and throughout the United States. Visit fortworth.citymomsblog.com to learn more. We're back. We are interviewing Rebecca Charleston today. She is the executive director of Valiant Hearts. And she is sharing her story of how she came out of sex trafficking and her life now. Okay, so uh, continue on with your story. Once I started running, you know, I, I just stayed on the run. And I remember stealing food in order to eat every day. I mean, I was just basic survival. Obviously, I couldn't get a job. I'm a high school dropout. I had actually turned 17 while I was inside the facility. Mm -hmm. So I knew while I was running that if they caught me, they couldn't force me to go back. We went to buy weed at this house at one point, and within about a week's time, I'm living at the drug dealer's house. You know, they kind of became a sense of my family, you know, at that point. I have these words tattooed on my arm. Unity, loyalty, brotherhood, sacrifice, and love equals family. And that's what I was out there searching for. I wasn't looking to be hurt or abused, or exploited. And, you know, I remember the first time I heard the word pimp, I imagined some guy with like a big fuzzy hat, you know, <laughs> a big green, chains. yeah, and like a pimp cane. And and that's a disservice, like you said, that we do in society is that we've really glamorized the word pimp. And we've made pimp a synonym for cool when it's anything but. I mean, it's gender-based yeah. violence. It's the oppression of other human beings that have dignity and worth. I was living at the drug dealer's house, and it wasn't long before the drug business got slow. And the other girl came to me, the one that had told me about a pimp. And she came to me one day and said, well, you know, we need to do something to pull our own weight. You know, these guys have been taking care of us, and, yeah, we needed to do something more to contribute. That made sense to my 17-year-old brain. You know, I thought, okay. So she took me to a strip club called Dreams off of Industrial Boulevard in Dallas, Texas, And I got hired at age 17. I just remember sitting on like 50, 60-year-old men's laps, you know, just drinking shots just to make it through the night mentally. I don't even know if I left with $5. You know, I I didn't make any money. And 
I really started to feel used and I didn't like what I was doing. And so there was this cute guy that used to come in and he would play pool in the back of the strip club. And so I decided to run away from the strip club. You know, I wanted to leave that life behind. And, you know, he seemed nice. And I thought he was going to be my boyfriend, you know, that love, you know, that I was always looking for and searching for. And so he was telling me all of his dreams, how he was an aspiring artist. And he just needed to get money so he could get that studio time and record that hit single. And then we'd get it on the radio and we'd all be rich and famous and life would be great. That night he had sex with me and woke up the next day and we got high again all day and... It wasn't until the second night that I would realize what his dreams were going to cost me in the form of my dignity and my body. And he told me to get in the car with the other two girls and they would show me the ropes. And I thought, okay, you know, living this kind of lifestyle, you don't ask a lot of questions. Questions get you killed. Questions make you seem like a snitch. Questions make you seem like you're not down. And so I thought we would obviously go rob a store or something. I mean, that's how I'd been surviving at that point. And instead, I found myself in the backseat of a car on Harry Hines Boulevard being told exactly how to ask people to have sex with me and exactly how much money I had to charge them. And it was like my entire world flipped upside down on top of me. And so I remember thinking if I run, I'm probably going to get raped and murdered and chopped up in little pieces and no one's ever going to find my body and know what happened to me. And so I stayed and I obeyed them. I remember thinking like, how could I ever look at my mom and dad in the face again? How could I ever tell them what's happening to me? Like, how would anybody ever understand? How could I ever be normal again? And that shame and that embarrassment kept me trapped. I mean, honestly, I didn't think I would live to see 21. I really didn't. With the way I was living, I knew I would be dead. One night we were um, strolling through strip club parking lots looking for customers coming out if they wanted to buy prostitution outside the club. And um, we saw this guy in the back of the parking lot and he had this, he was this big buff guy and had this big Rottweiler dog with him. And so we pulled up next to him to see if he was going to be a customer. And we were talking to him about his dog. And all of a sudden he looked in the back seat of the car and looked at me and said, why don't you get out? Let me see what you're working with. And I figured, of course, he was going to buy me. And so I got out of the car and went around to the trunk of the car. And he said, he, he started talking to me and he told me I was beautiful in a time when I felt lower than dirt. Mm-hmm. He told me he was going to give me his number and to not give it to those other two girls. And that made me feel special, you know, in a time where I literally wanted to die every single day. And so I started sneaking around to pay phones. Yeah, I didn't have a cell phone back then and to call this guy. And sometimes a woman would answer his phone, but he told me it was his secretary. And I was like, wow, like I, here I am eating out of gas stations every day. Mm-hmm. And so here was this guy that was 20 years older than me from California. As a small town Texas girl, I'd always dreamed about California. And he had a secretary and he knew what I was doing, but he was different. And he seemed like he wanted to help me and, and get me out of it. You know, I remember weighing, kill myself or give this guy a try. You know, maybe he's that person that I've always been looking for. He's going he's gonna to help me get out of this and rebuild my life and, and become successful. You know, I had the same dreams that we all do growing up. And, and so I decided, you know what, I could always kill myself later. I might as well give that guy a try. Mm-hmm. He asked me if I wanted to go to the movies with him. And I said, sure. You know, I hadn't been to the movies in a really long time. And so he bought tickets and bought popcorn and some soda and... And we, instead of going in the theater to watch the movie, we just sat on the bench next to the bathrooms inside for hours. And he asked me all these questions about my family and my life and what I wanted to be when I grew up. And when I told him about what my family had done, he instantly was like, wow, you must have a terrible family. 
How could they have done that to you? And I mean, you're a good kid. They must be horrible people. Mm-hmm. I had no clue that that was the beginning of isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't speak to my family for years from that point. He took me to a hotel the first night and had sex with me. And the next day we woke up and he told me he was going to take me to his house. And did I want to live with him? And I was like, yeah, like, I'm whatever you're doing, I'm on board. You know, I, I want to live a different life. And so so we finally pull up to this huge 5,000 square foot stucco home and that stuck out like a sore thumb in a neighborhood full of brick homes. And I was like, wow. And he went to me to live with him, and he gave me my own bedroom. And there was another girl that was there, but she was actually nice to me, even when he wasn't around. And he started instantly with the manipulation and the coercion. The abuse didn't start for a couple months into it, and the exploitation didn't start for a couple months. I, I truly thought I had gotten out. Yeah. You know, I really thought I was living a different life. He let me, I just stayed home all day. He wanted me to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop using drugs. He wanted me to stop talking like street trash. And he taught me how to clean my body better. I mean, just hygiene, teach me how to drive better. I mean, I was 17 years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was young. Yeah. And he was 37. And all these things that felt like he was making me better. And so I thought, he loves me. You know, he really loves me. Yeah, it seemed like care, like genuine care that you had been longing for exactly yeah it was really hard to separate and look back and see that no he was only making me the most profitable he could I remember the first time he knocked me out it was at the house with the that same house in Denton with the other two girls there was two girls that had I would I would come to learn had already been with him 10 years by the point I met him he had been a pimp for 20 years before I ever met him you know he he had told me to do something at the house that day and I responded, and the next thing I knew, one of the other women was standing over me with a bag of frozen peas on my eyes, telling me if I just didn't respond that way, then he wouldn't have hit me. Because of course, it was my fault he hit me. And I remember as an 18-year-old little girl, um, I did not like getting hit in the head. I have PTSD flashbacks to this day that I can still feel my brain sloshing around in my head like Mm -hmm. it did when he would punch me in the face like a man. And so I carried around this handwritten list of everything he would beat me for because I did not like getting beaten. And that's what people don't understand is every moment isn't bad. You know, if, if it was, we would run a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Traffickers are skilled at applying just enough love and then removing it and applying force and control over you. And then, I mean, it's a typical domestic violence cycle. And I was always longing for those honeymoon moments, you know, when he would be nice to me and maybe he would take me out to my favorite restaurant or Maybe he would give me a night off. Um, you know, you never you never knew. And so you were always trying to get back in their good graces of, no, let's, let's get back to that moment, you know, yeah. that, that you were nice to me. And what can I do? Let me do everything right. And, you know, eventually I would learn that you could never do everything right because he would just find a new reason to beat you. Mm-hmm. And the exploitation began not long after. It always began in strip clubs across the country. Yeah, he would, that next trafficker would turn around and abuse me and exploit me all over the country for the next 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to get away until the federal authorities finally became involved. And so, um, like I said, it began in strip clubs in every city. It began in strip clubs in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's something legal you can do, especially when you're traveling. You go start at a strip club. You can make enough money to get out, and you can uh, go rent your hotel room with the money you just made and then start posting ads online and start seeing customers outside of the club. Mm. And so eventually he would send me across the country, but it was always with another victim at first so they could control me and make sure I was doing everything right and collect all my money and send it back to him across the country. 
um, it was a horrific experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Now, you said that at some point federal authorities got involved. What happened then? Yeah, and that's why I love, you know, being able to talk to communities like this because I'm in front of probably five to 10,000 people a year, um, but they're all law enforcement, social workers who have some understanding of this topic. Um, but how our case began and the key to my freedom was just a neighbor. You know, what they suspected is that we were selling drugs, but they made a tip. They happened to know someone that was an IRS CID agent, a criminal investigation division agent for the IRS. And um, so he started working our case. He started going through our trash and uh, KB, our trafficker, he actually saw our trash man giving a trash bag to what looked like a federal agent at the end of the street one day. And he got extremely paranoid at that point. Yeah. Um, the beatings ramped up even more. He would make us get on the floor in front of him and he would say, what's your name? And we would have to say lawyer and he would punch us in the face till we fell over. Mm. Get back up. What's your address? Lawyer. Punch you in the face until you fall over. I mean, it was literally beaten into us that the only word we could say was lawyer. One morning, I had my door essentially busted down from this IRS CID agent. His name is Mark Parsons. He's a great guy. I know him today. But um, he busted down my door essentially, and uh, they arrested me first because I was the youngest, and they thought I would roll. You know, I would snitch and. Unfortunately for them and for myself, really, I was prepared for that from day one. You know, it wasn't if they came, it was when they came. And a chain is only as strong as its weakest link and four heads are better than one. And all these mantras that KB would have us like repeat and all these things he would always say to us. And so I I was ready and I was ready to keep my mouth shut and do my part so he wouldn't murder me, mm. you know? And when someone beats you where you have blood pouring out of your face, you believe them when they say they'll kill you. So I kept my mouth shut, unfortunately, and I wound up serving 13 months in federal prison for conspiracy to commit tax evasion. That was the one thing they could actually prove was that um, we did not, we had not paid any taxes. So the entire 13 months, he was telling me, you know, when I got out, I was going to be able to kick my feet up and retire and have that baby I always wanted to have. And he was just dangling that carrot in front of my face, you know, making sure I didn't change my mind and open my mouth. And so I got out and I still went back to him. It was in 2007, I got out of prison. And it wasn't until 2009 that he turned himself in on the same indictment to serve. He got 24 months. 2009, I thought, okay, I'm, I have my chance. Honestly, it took me about 30 days to work up the nerve to be able to do it, even though he was in prison. Mm. That's how terrified mm -hmm. I was. 30 days, I physically got ill every single day at the stress and the thought of leaving him and what he was going to do to me when he got out. By that time, I'd been arrested 10 times, had a federal felony. I had no job experience. I only had my GED because the federal prison made me. I mean, he was putting all those things in my name. I have a $600,000 foreclosed home in my name, two repossessed cars in my name. I, he was getting credit cards in my name while I was serving time in prison for him. I had about $50,000 of credit card debt in my name. I mean, what was I running to when I ran? I had no options really other than to stay in. You know, so I stayed in the life for about a year and a half from that point and thinking that I knew how much money had passed through my hands. Millions of dollars had passed through my hands at that point. And I knew that now I didn't have anyone taking it from me. So, you know, girl power, woohoo. You know, but when we talk about the daily realities of what prostitution and sex trafficking are like, it's horrific. Yeah. I've been in more fistfights with grown men. I mean, running out of hotel rooms with my clothes in my hand, getting dressed in the stairwell. I mean, 
raped more times than I care to count, robbed at gunpoint, strangled with guns to my head, how many times I found guns in hotel rooms, how many women I know that have been murdered by the people that buy them or by their traffickers. Prostitution is not a victimless crime, and it doesn't matter if you're there by force of a trafficker or by circumstance due to life circumstances. Prostitution is the same. It doesn't matter. Customers don't care. They don't ask you (laughs) if you're being trafficked or not. And so without someone breathing down my neck, forcing me to do it, I got really miserable and I just floundered. I went through one dysfunctional relationship after another and I got addicted to drugs again. You know, I, I wanted to live a different life. I just didn't know how to at that point. And so I actually moved to Vegas of all places to get clean. (laughs) And I did. I was able to get clean. And I wound up getting in another relationship, which was slightly less dysfunctional. You know, they were all a step up, you know, but pretty dysfunctional still. Then I was able to transition and finally get out of the life. And I um, was clean off drugs. And about a year into the relationship, I found out I was pregnant. And that, for me, changed everything. (laughs) I mean, this is a mom's club, so you guys all know Mm -hmm. that you will do stuff for your children that you would never do for yourself. And I knew I had to do something different because I didn't want a day of my son's future to look anything like my past. Mm. And so I called my family here in Texas, and I said, I'm pregnant. I don't want to raise a baby in this environment. Will you help me? And here I am, 30 years old, and I had literally no idea who I even was. It was the first time in my life that I didn't have a man telling me who I was and what I liked and what I wanted to do. And I was terrified. You know, physical freedom doesn't equal emotional or mental freedom. No, no it doesn't. I moved back in my mom and dad's house and had to get on Medicaid and food stamps. And, you know, getting out of exploitation usually means choosing poverty. And that can be a really hard decision, especially when you've had so much money pass through your hands, even if it wasn't yours. After I got here, I I took a nap for about two hours. Of course, I was tired. I drove 23 hours straight Mm -hmm. through. And my sister came in the house and she said, hey, I'm about to go to church. Do you want to go with me? And I hopped up, you know, because while I was living in Vegas, I remember I, you know, and I was pregnant and I started feeling burdened to pray for the first time in a long time. And, you know, at that point, like, I thought if I walk into a church, I'm probably going to spontaneously combust, you know, like, just sin all over me, like, (laughs) just burst in flames. (laughs) And, um, you know, but I started, I started praying and, you know, asking God to make a way that I knew I needed to change my life, but I knew I needed him because I didn't know how to do it on my own. And, And so when I got here to Texas and my sister asked me to church, I was like, okay, God, you got me here. Like, I'm ready to see what you have for me. I hadn't processed any of my trauma. I still fully blamed myself for all my victimization. It took me a long time to realize that, no, that was never my choice. You know, and that's the number one challenge facing victims is that we do not self-identify as victims of trafficking. We're told that it's our choice and that we're getting what we deserve and that's what we believe and we don't have compassion for ourselves. You know, and honestly, to finally have compassion on myself, I had to look back at that 17-year-old girl I was that met that 37-year-old man, and I was abused and manipulated and coerced from day one, and that I never woke up one day and said, I want to be a prostitute. You know, I never woke up one day and said, I want to take my clothes off for money. Those are things I was forced and manipulated to do, but honestly, to have compassion on myself, I actually had to pretend like it was one of my best friend's kids. And when I pretended like it was one of my best friend's 17-year-old daughter, I realized those things should have never happened to her. And that's how I was finally able to have compassion for myself and not blame myself. And so a couple months later, I, I got a call from this girl that was in the life with me. And she said, hey, there's this group of church ladies that has a support group that meets. 
you know, they they help strippers. And did I want to go to this meeting with her? And I was like, what? Yeah, right. Like, they're going to be all judgy. Like, there's no way I could ever connect with these women with these pristine lives. You know, how would they ever understand me? But it was a free meal and I was pregnant. So I was like, okay, sure. And so I went. And instead of what I thought I would expect, you know, I walked through those doors and was met with the most kind, non-judgmental eyes, you know, genuine embraces by people that saw something inside me that I didn't believe existed. Mm-hmm. I remember the first night, they even gave me a little gift bag, and it wasn't anything special. It was just like a journal and a couple pins and maybe a book, but it had a profound impact on me because where I come from, people don't do things for you for nothing in return. I remember at one point, I actually, this guy offered me a cigarette and I said, okay, sure, I'd take it. And then he came back with a gun and robbed me instead. I mean, Mm. so people don't do nice things for you, you know, when you live that kind of lifestyle. And that that simple gift, and they didn't even know my name really. They didn't even know if I would ever show up again and they didn't care. They just wanted to love on me. That was something I'd never encountered before. And so it stuck for me. I kept going back every single week. The other girl never came again. She stayed in the life, and that's her choice. But it stuck. And they f- they paid for me to get some of my brands covered up. I was branded as in with tattoos by my traffickers. Mm-hmm. They funded me to go to my first national conference, which is where I got a taste for public speaking mm-hmm. and realized that I really liked it and I really want to use my story to help other people. Um, because at the end of the day, for me, if I can make one other person not feel ashamed about what they've experienced and make one other person not blame themselves, then it's worth it. You know, it makes it all worth something. Otherwise, it's just a hell I survived. Mm -hmm. And so that's the same program, that little support group that helps strippers that I'm the executive director of today called Valiant Hearts. For all the mamas who are crying with you and listening to you, what are tips that you can give us to look out for this type of manipulation, like entering their own lives or entering the lives of their children? Um, I think God built us with this internal radar. And often we stifle it and we tell ourselves like, oh, no, it's probably not what I think. You know, but I think a lot of times when things stand out to us as weird or, you know, we see a girl sitting in a car crying at the gas station when we get out and her face is a little red, you know, and then we look back and we see the guy coming back out and he looks angry. I mean, when you think about the prevalence of domestic violence and sexual assault, we are walking around these people all the time, you know, but when we think about trafficking, a lot of times it's an older guy or someone befriending a kid and giving them nice things. You know, a huge red flag would be uh, all of a sudden they have a Louis Vuitton or Gucci purse. You know, traffickers intentionally buy their victims nice stuff to attract other victims and to make it seem like they're loving on them and lavishing them. Just dramatic changes in behavior behavior instead of just trying to correct the behavior or kick the kid out of school you know maybe we need to ask more questions and right. get them into some counseling how do you parent your boys like moms of young boys listening to this right i cannot tell you how many men i have met that have brought their sons uh-uh. to the strip club for their first lap dance no bought their son their first sexual service from a prostituted person no. uh-uh. it is oh generational gosh. it I is can't. taught behavior but the hypersexualized culture like you said oh that we gosh. live in today and i mean with kids the average age of exposure to pornography is between 11 and 12 years old now mm-hmm. yeah. and so these kids are seeing very violent sex and they're seeing sex as 
just something that you do and that you can take what you want. And like I said, women have no value other than how they look and what, what you can get from them. So it is a huge problem. Yeah. Like how do we raise healthy sons? I'm asking myself that same question. Right. You know, I tell my son what I do today and tell him usually about helping the women because that's really what we help the most. We do help the men as well. But how do I instill in him the value of a woman and also the value of a man? Yeah. You know yeah, what a man, right. what a true man is. So as a mom of two girls mm-hmm. and as a mom of two girls of color, who, if I look at the statistics, mm-hmm. aren't very pleasant mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. how can I, as a mom, like better, like empower my girls where they will tell me? And so that's a huge decision I had to make. And for me, it all comes down to relationship. What I try to do is we've made a deal that if you come to me and tell me the truth, that you won't get in trouble. And so even if he's done something bad or, you know, whatever it may be, obviously we're talking innocent stuff at this point, but that if he comes to me and tells me the truth, then he won't get in trouble for it, that we're going to, now we're going to talk about it. And now if he does it again, then he's going to get in trouble. Um, But for me, I just felt like if I said anything that I would have gotten in trouble, I knew I had done something wrong. I, I knew I had snuck out. And while I knew that shouldn't have happened to me, I still thought that I would get in trouble if I said anything about it. And obviously then layer in the shame and the embarrassment and, you know, not even knowing, you know, like I said, I didn't have language for that stuff. We don't, you know, we, we try to protect our children, but I think in some ways we shield them too much. You know, I, I like to have healthy, open conversations with my son so that the first time he hears something isn't from his friends, that he already knows what it is. So I want him, I would rather him learn from me and learn the right things, then learn from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like where you use the correct anatomical terms for body parts and stuff like that. Because, I mean, abusers and manipulators will will notice that. Okay, so real quick to wrap up, talk to us about Valiant Hearts. So we have been around since 2010. Since that time, we've served more than 500 women. So we serve women, not only the women that have been trafficked, we serve anyone that's been affected by sexual exploitation because the problem is so much bigger than trafficking. So we want to love on them. We have a weekly support group that meets. Basically, it's just a come and go. You know, they can show up whenever they want. They're always going to get a home-cooked meal when they show up, and they're always going to get free child care. Uh, they generally get to take home leftovers with them even, and uh, we always also give them a $10 gas or Uber card. We realize that getting out of exploitation usually means choosing poverty, and we never want money to be the reason that they don't show up to a support group. You know, we are a faith-based organization, but we don't proselytize. We don't force people to convert to Christianity. Um, we don't believe that's what Jesus wants us to do. We just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And sometimes we could do that without ever even saying his name. We have that weekly support group, but if they actually want to work our program, we have what's called the Wings Journey. And that's where we pair them with a mentor. We They go through four distinct seasons of change. We provide a variety of wraparound services to address some of those challenges that they're facing getting out. We have employers that we partner with. We're trying to build out an economic empowerment program because you know, you get out of that life and you're used to making so much money. It's really hard to get a job at like McDonald's or Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really, most often you're going to go back. We um, partner with employers that can give them meaningful, sustainable living wage jobs. Mm -hmm. We have a few different employers we partner with. We're always looking for more, you know, employers that are willing to say, hey, I will, I'm willing to open up a position for a qualified candidate. You know, we're not asking for tokenism, um, but for a qualified candidate, uh, and I'm willing to look back past their background. 
you know, and I'm willing to give them a chance. In June of 2018, we actually opened up our housing program. So we have two different housing facilities now, and the housing is specifically for um, trafficking victims. And so we have an emergency shelter, which is designed to just be 48-hour hold, where we can kind of triage, we can get the medical care, figure out what the next step is. Um, In a year and a half period, we've served about 18 women now with our housing program. And um, most of those women have gone on to restoration homes. Some have gone on to like transitional living. And I think one or two have been returned to actually healthy families. And as I mentioned, we also serve the men, you know, because we realize that if we're just going after and helping women get out every single day, that we're always going to have a job tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're really hopeful right now in Tarrant County, we're partnering with Unbound Fort Worth, and we're trying to get a sex buyer school implemented as a condition of probation. So we just had some new laws implemented September 1st, which the uh, law enforcement officers are starting to go after the Johns, right, the sex buyers, Mm -hmm. instead of the prostituted people. You know, because research shows that even if you're not being trafficked, when you look at prostituted people, they've lived through horrific life experiences. They've been through the foster care system. They have no family. They've lived in poverty. They're homeless. They've been sexually abused as children, 90 plus percent of them. And so even if they're not there by force, they're there out of dire circumstance. And so why would we want to criminalize their behavior, mm-hmm. right? We want to give them services and a way out instead. And we want to go after the men that are causing the problem by buying people as and treating them like commodities. If you were able to speak to one mom or one woman who has been through similar experiences, what would you say to her right now? Oh, man, I would say that you're going to get through it, that you can be healed from it, and it will no longer hurt you, that you don't have to stand up on a stage and share your story like me, but you need to find someone. You need to find someone safe. Just knowing that it doesn't define you. You know, your past and what has happened to you does not get to control your future. It only does if you let it. And I mean, I wake up every day. I never thought, I thought I would be dead. I thought I would never be able to get over those things. Today, I have a master's degree. I have a beautiful son. I mean, I'm traveling across the country and on stages across the country, teaching people, using my story to help others, but to surround yourself with other people that are like you. That has done volumes for me in terms of healing is finding a group of people that have been through the same thing and being able to be a community with them. I don't think I would be where I am today without that. It's a, it's a blessing to get to do what I do. An extra special thank you to Rebecca for sharing your story with us. And to our listeners, if you or someone you know is involved in human trafficking of any kind, you can call the Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or text 233-733. Find this information and more in our show notes. As always, visit fortworth.citymomsblog.com to see the notes from this show including links to products and content mentioned in this episode. And just one more time, in case you didn't hear, it's fortworth.citymomsblog.com. Fort Worth Mom's Blog.